0: Well, Exodus 37, we've got here the uh, the account of the, the ark being made, and the, the mercy seat that is on the ark, and the, the various uh, bits of furniture in the tabernacle, and it's that which I want to talk about. And straight away, verse 1, Bezalel made the ark of shittim wood, or acacia wood, the RV says. Now, this really was was not a, a tree, this was really a bush that grew in the wilderness, and the Hebrew word translated uh, "shittim" or "acacia" it really means a stick or a rod, and in Joshua 23:13 it's actually translated as thorns, so it's really like a, a thorn tree, uh, a thorn bush. And so the the wood that you get from from this uh, bush is very really brittle. It's in pretty short lengths, uh, very difficult to work with, very difficult to uh, bind it together to get any decent length with which to work for example to make a box like, uh, like the ark and all these different parts of the tabernacle it was the most difficult thing to, to use the most difficult kind of material to use and of course the tabernacle in its bigger picture represents us and God in that sense is, uh, is working with very very poor material And why, of course, did God tell them to use this? Well, I think that, in a sense, God was limited by what was available, because there they were in the wilderness, and they had not taken with them from Egypt huge planks of wood. Actually, this was all that they had. They couldn't really use anything else. And so, in that sense, God, I think, is, in one sense, limited by the material that is in his hand, and we are that material. Now, that is not to say that God cannot, if he wishes, go over and above us and operate in a completely different way or a completely different dimension. Of course he can. But he also, I think, limits himself to, as it were, what is available. Now, this is a comfort to us with our brittleness and uh, the difficulty that we feel, I guess, within our own personalities and characters. And it's also, I I suppose, uh, a way of helping us to understand each other because so often we look at the the brittleness and the the weakness and the difficulty and the awkwardness of those that are next to us in the ecclesia, in, in the people of God. And it can be very discouraging and, of course, practically very, very difficult to live with some people. But this is the shit in wood. This is the lesson of the uh, the acacia wood that was being used for all this. And, of course, it was overlaid with pure gold and it was given such huge meaning by God. Of course, when you read about it all being made here you i suppose inevitably think well suddenly when all this was put together in the right place at the right time then god suddenly declared this to be super holy but all it started off with was uh, bits of uh, thornbush uh, lying around in the desert that were sort of banded together somehow to make lengths long, long enough to work with and then overlaid and then this huge Spiritual significance and the great glory of God was attached to it, and that is, of course, what has happened to you and I, and not only to you and me, but to that brother or sister who is so difficult and so awkward, uh, who's next to us in in the people of God. Now I want to uh, focus in verse two upon the the way that this this ark, right, this uh, this box, is is made, and the the top of the box, the cover of the box, is what is called the, the mercy seat. Um, it was really just a, a lid, that's what it was. <clears throat> and around the top of the ark, that is, around the, the, the lid, the mercy seat, there was a crown of gold around it, verse 2. Now, that, of course, implies that the actual Ark and the, the lid, the mercy seat upon it, was a king, was a person, because it's crowned. Now, yes, I am going to go down the road of saying that uh, these things point forward to Jesus, because in the New Testament, very clearly, the, uh, the so-called mercy seat, this uh, cover that is upon the, uh, upon the Ark, this is interpreted in that way in Romans and in Hebrews. Uh, but I would just like to raise a kind of a caveat, a kind of a warning about um, interpreting types, uh, etc., uh, because it's caused a lot of trouble in our community and in many communities. Okay, this uh, mercy seat, this uh, had two gold cherubim coming out of it. And in verse 8, um, we're told that uh, of one piece... With if they were of one piece with the mercy seat. So then, the mercy seat, this lid on top of the ark, had two cherubim coming up out of it, which were also of gold, and were of the same material and of one piece with it. Now, I just mention this because in the Bible it's quite clear that the cherubim are associated with the angels. Now, if you were to overinterpret this, you could say, Ah, well, the mercy seat represents Jesus, the cherubs represent the angels, and they're all of one, one and the same material, and verse 8 says they are of uh, one on the same piece, of one piece with the mercy seat. Uh, Therefore, Jesus was an angel. Therefore, he had the nature of angels. Well, Hebrews 1 categorically says that Jesus was not an angel, he had our nature and not the nature of angels, and he is in a totally different category to angels. He came to save us and not angels. I'm sure you remember the argument there in Hebrews 1 and 2. So, you could over-interpret that verse 8 and end up with a terribly wrong conclusion. All because you're trying to strain a type. And I just mention that because it's bizarre to say this, but it's true, that... Whole communities have divided, and families have broken up, and individuals have fallen out with each other, all over the interpretation of types of Jesus from the tabernacle. Now, having made that uh, caveat, that kind of warning, I'm going to try and go on to to talk about this mercy seat, um, as we're invited to see it in the New Testament, as representing or speaking something of Jesus. Now, the RV margin for mercy seat has a covering, and that is the idea, a a covering, and it's the same basic Hebrew root that's used about the covering of sin. So there was definitely that idea. And once a year, the high priest came into the most holy place and sprinkled the blood of atonement on this mercy seat, on this covering. This lid that was on the ark. And over the years that blood would have built up. And it was that blood which of course Hebrews is at such pains to point out. That represents the blood of Jesus. For the atonement of our sin. And you've got the angels. Uh, sorry the cherubs looking down. Uh, constantly at that blood. And I think that is alluded to in of Peter 1, 11 and 12. Where talking about the work of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Peter just comments which things the angels desire to look into and the idea of the Greek there is definitely to peer down into and I think without question he has in mind here the angels the the cherubim peering down looking down into the as he calls it the precious blood of Christ so then the uh, mercy seat represents Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, Hebrews 3 verse uh, 25 uh, does seem to specifically uh, state that, where, if you just might like, look over there, uh, Romans three twenty five, um, Paul says that God has set Jesus forth uh, to be a propitiation, the AV says. Um, a mercy seat, that is definitely what the word, uh, what the, the word means. Uh, God set Jesus forth to be a mercy seat through faith in his blood. To show his righteousness uh, because of the passing over of the sins done aforetime in the forbearance of God. Now that is a day of, a day of atonement, illusion. The passing over of sins done aforetime. That's what they did. Every year they came and remembered the the sins they had committed in the past year. And they offered the uh, sacrifice and put the blood of atonement on the mercy seat. But that mercy seat here, we're told, is Jesus. And God has set him forth, has displayed this. So that through faith in the blood sprinkled there, we also can have a passing over of our sins, a covering of our sins uh, which were done aforetime. Now, the idea of being set forth, being openly displayed, it's as if we are invited to view the mercy seat and to see the blood of Christ there. But of course the high priest alone could do that once a year. And the implication, I think, is that we have gone in to the most holy place. We have seen the blood there on the mercy seat, and we have believed in it. And, of course, the glory of God appeared between the caravan. This was where God was enthroned, as it were. Now, Hebrews also seems to refer to the uh, the mercy seat um, we're told that we uh, should be able to uh, enter with confidence into the most holy place by the blood of Christ. Now, it was only the high priest who could enter the, the, holy, the most holy place, and that just once a year. And yet we're told that we can do that, and that was the significance of the veil coming down when Jesus died. Now, especially for people in the first century from a Jewish background, this was just a huge idea that I can enter the most holy place, that I can see the blood there on the mercy seat, and I can see the glory of God hovering, shimmering over it. Now, this was an incredible idea. Why did the high priest go in there? Well, we know, again, Hebrews says he went in there to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. That's why he went into the most holy place. And yet, if we are asked to do the same, that means, I think, that we are asked also, in a sense, to go into the presence of God and to get forgiveness for other people. So it's not as if, oh yeah, the high priest went in once a year, and when Jesus died on the cross, well yeah, he went in and uh, finally did it all, and we can just uh, mop our brow and relax. No, we are asked to do the same. You see, everything that's true of Jesus becomes true of us if we are in Christ. If he's the seed of Abraham, so are we. Um, This is the significance of being baptized into Christ. And therefore, in the same way as he went in there, so we also are to do the same. Not simply look on as spectators at a show, thinking, wow, good job, Jesus, that was great. We are asked to do the same for others. This is the whole point of interceding for others. And I know you could say, yeah, well, each man will die or be saved according to his or her behavior and faith and so forth. But there is also an element to which we can, in some cases, do that for others. Because otherwise the whole idea of our intercession and our going with Jesus into the most holy place is somehow, I think, limited. Now, I'd like to take you to Hebrews four fifteen and 16. We have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but we have one that has been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace. Now, the throne of grace, I suggest, uh, was a, uh, a term that Jewish people used in the first century for the mercy seat because as i said the whole thing is set up as a seat as a throne with a crown upon it implying that there's a king sitting there and so the throne of grace was a, uh, a phrase understood referring to the mercy seat let us therefore draw near with boldness not like the high priest who had to go in once a year and had a uh, uh, a bell on him so that if it stopped ringing the people would know that uh, he had died and they could sort of uh, Pull his body out, uh, we come with boldness unto the throne of grace. This is uh, to be understood in the terms that we get later on in Hebrews that we with boldness can enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We can enter into the most holy place, here it says, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And I suggest he's saying the same thing, same allusion. He's writing to Jewish people, of course, um, who would have picked this up immediately, that we can come boldly unto the mercy seat. Now, going on, that we may receive or obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, the question is, obtain mercy and find grace for who? Well, not only for ourselves, but for others. And in fact, that theme is continued in, uh, in chapter 5. Um, <clears throat> and uh, goes on in chapter 7 as well. Of doing this for ourselves and also for others. So i, I leave you to reflect on that. Hebrews 4.16, that our drawing near with boldness... Unlike a nervous high priest with a rope attached to him and a bell always making a noise, so that if he were to have a heart attack or die suddenly while he was in the most holy place, his body could be pulled out by the other priests. No, we can draw near boldly to the throne of grace, to the actual mercy seat over the ark with the cherubim over it and the glory of God shimmering upon it, with the blood of atonement there on the cover, so that we may f- obtain mercy and grace. And I've suggested that that mercy and grace is not so much for ourselves, but for others, that we are to replicate the work of Christ in ourselves to some extent. So this is not uh, simply a question of, well, great, I, uh, I believe and yes, I have been saved. I can sit back. This would be to miss the point. We are to actually repeat the work of Jesus in our own lives for others. So, as I said, the the mercy seat, it does imply that someone is enthroned there. And the the crown around the edge implies that it's a king. There's quite a few uh, psalms that talk about how God dwells between the cherubim. Psalm 80 verse 1, 99 verse 1, and there's a few others. So then, clearly, God was seen as continually dwelling there. And in Numbers 7, we're told, at the end of Numbers 7, we're told that uh, God, God's voice spoke from between the cherubim. And again in Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, we have the idea that the, the blood of Christ is like a voice, a voice more powerful than the earthquake that shook Sinai when the Old Covenant was instituted. But now we have a voice, the voice of the blood of Christ, that shakes absolutely all things. So, in our breaking of bread, we come, again, in our mind's eye, to the Lord Jesus on the cross, and the blood of atonement physically uh, coming out of him. But, But, again, the cross, in a sense, was... A throne, and in Roman slang, actually, the cross was called in a sarcastic way of course the throne, and there was on a lot of uh, these crosses what was called a sedile a seat a little seat, and the idea was that to prolong the agony, um, this thing was put there so that the the victim could get some temporary Relief by putting their their weight uh, where their their backside was, that they could sort of just about manage to get a little bit of perch on this uh, little bit of bit of wood that was attached to the cross, which was called a, a seat, uh, because otherwise their whole weight was hanging just on their on their uh, arms, and of course this would have raised blood pressure, etc and they could just get a little bit of relief by pushing back onto this little bit of wood that was called a seat uh, it wasn't much of a seat, just a piece of wood and in Ver Keller's book uh, The Bible is History yes, uh, it's very dated now um, there's a very fascinating little section there about this and it's been commented uh, by a number of people who've looked at how crucifixion was done because the idea was that uh, the more you push back the more you got temporary relief the longer your sufferings were. So, Jesus, in that sense, you could say, on the cross was enthroned. And when Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord Jesus, he says he sees the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. And John 12 quotes that and says Isaiah said this when he saw a vision of the Lord Jesus and saw his glory. But he sees him high and lifted up. Uh, which, of course, implies glory. Um, and it's the same phrase used in uh, the, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah 52, 53, that on the cross, Jesus was lifted up. And so, in a sense, at the, the worst nadir, at the, the worst moment of, of human shame, naked, covered in blood and spittle on the cross, he was, in God's eyes, lifted up in glory. And... My point is, then, that in the death of Jesus, we do see the utter glory of God, that just as the glory appeared over the blood that was on the mercy seat, the the Shekinah glory, the... uh, the bright light, if you like, this inexplicable, indescribable glory of God that shone forth between the cherubim and that he, his voice, number 7, I think it's verse 89, right at the end of that long chapter anyway, number 7, uh, his voice, the voice of Yahweh, came out uh, from over the mercy seat. Uh, this is what we see as we come before the, the cross of the Lord Jesus, that God speaks to us through his blood. Hebrews 12, as I say, talks about that blood as being more powerful than the earthquake that Sanya. In what sense, though? You know, putting meaning into words and into ideas. Uh, in what sense was this so? It was so, I believe, in the sense that insofar as we look at the cross of Jesus and we try to reconstruct in our mind's eye what happened there, we have him speaking to us. Because somehow in your conscience you know what you should not be doing, what you should do. There in him there, if we properly focus upon him and rid our minds of all the other things that uh, clutter our minds and take away that focus. In him there we have God's voice to us.